I so like those handrails you put in. That was great. Very nice. <clears throat> it was, <laughs> hate to say it, but yes, I, I am there where that is all needed. And uh, anyway, it's wonderful to see. It's great to see everybody here. <clears throat> and we certainly do pray for the shows in, uh, in uh, Korea, that uh, everything is going well there for them. We uh, were able uh, uh, finally to, uh, to, to get together a little bit and have a game night, which we haven't had for, oh, I don't know, for, since before COVID uh, with uh, uh, Sung and, um, and uh, uh, somebody else, and it was just wonderful to see. Well, the last time I was with you, I had the privilege of, of preaching on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. There certainly can be no a greater message than that one, and uh, I consider that an absolute highlight. Uh, but today I want us to consider uh, what Scripture says about a number of issues that have increasingly been on the forefront of our culture in the last few years. One of those, actually, as Steve already mentioned, the issue of abortion, which is uh, hardly a new issue, but since the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade less than two months ago, it's returned to the forefront as a hot-button issue, to be sure. About a year ago here at Faith, not that I'm expecting that you might remember, but I preached on Psalm 139, and I discussed its implications for the abortion issue. Basically, verses 13 to 16 of Psalm 139 tells us that God intricately forms each unborn uh, child for a specific purpose. And so you and I shouldn't unilaterally decide to end that life through abortion. Each life has a purpose, whether we fully understand it or not, so we should not tamper with God's workmanship or God's plans. By the way, New Testament passages such as Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and 44 tell us that the unborn child shows cognition and emotion. You remember when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, it says the babe leaped in her womb for joy. But abortion is just one uh, issue today where we're seeing a clash of worldviews. The one worldview which appears to be gaining ground rapidly is one in which God is sidelined or excluded entirely, and uh, people are living for themselves without reference to God or without reference to eternity. But the second worldview, which I hope each of us here this morning holds, is one in which people put God squarely in the center of their thinking, acknowledging his sovereignty and humbly seeking to live according to his precepts while patiently waiting for the Lord's coming. Increasingly, I think we're seeing a rather vigorous clash of these two worldviews around us. So many of the cultural issues that we face today go right back to the beginning chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis 1 to 3. That's why I appreciate ministries such as Answers in Genesis, which... Uh, I've uh, uh, supported for a number of years, and uh, it really uh, is doing a good work. I believe these chapters are absolutely pivotal in our understanding of God's design for us. Now, let me say at the outset that Genesis 1 and 2 are historically true, 
just like the rest of the scriptures. And if I, uh, I clicked on your uh, website and I see that you're having an Is Genesis History, is that correct? It is up to date. And uh, so in September, six weeks, that's an excellent series, and I would certainly uh, commend it. Uh, unlike many today who uh, see one's view of Genesis 1 and 2 as a side issue, I believe that it's an essential issue. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. It says the creation of the world, uh, his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Psalm 19, verse 1, similarly says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. God's power and his deity are revealed to all people through creation. A child can look at the sky and the universe and intuitively knows that God made it all. The vastness and amazing design of the universe is a powerful witness to God. And that's why atheists are so doggedly determined to stamp out that witness, as is Satan himself. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. These days, he's using educated, brilliant, but spiritually deficient science and religion professors to trumpet evolution as scientifically enlightened truth. It all starts with Genesis because creation is such a powerful witness to God. And if Genesis 1 isn't true, then that impacts our understanding of the Bible as the inerrant word of God, and then we can go on to chapter 3 and wonder about a literal Adam and a literal fall, and if that didn't happen, then why do we need a Savior in the first place? Well, my intention this morning is not to go through a detailed study of Genesis 1 and 2. Rather, in light of the pressures of contemporary culture, a worldview which excludes God, I thought it would be helpful to review what these chapters say about some key issues today. It all starts with Genesis. And even though I've been teaching the Bible for over 45 years, since 1976, it never ceases to amaze me how the scripture is relevant in every culture, in every generation, and every issue, time and time again. And let me say at the outset that you and I need to teach our children, our young people, about these things since our culture is bombarding them on every side with the opposite message. And we can't assume that just because we understand these things that they do as well. A lot can change in only one generation if parents don't do their job in passing along these truths to their children. I'm going to make uh, four points from Genesis 1 and 2 then make applications from each of these points to our society today and finish with one final point from Genesis chapter 3. My first point is that man is the crown of creation made in God's image and given dominion over the animals. Man is the crown of creation made in God's image and given dominion over the animals. Throughout the text of Genesis 1, the stress is on the distinction between man and the animals. 
Man is the last being created on, on the very last day. After each day, the, the text says that God saw that it was good. But at the end of the sixth day, it says it was very good. Not only that, man is created in the image of God himself, according to Genesis 1.26. In that same verse, God gives man dominion over the animals. In Psalm 8, verses 5 to 8, David echoes the same truth. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little less than God, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Evolutionists say that man is just another animal. But the scripture says man is not like the animals, but like God. That's how God created us in the first place. It's nothing great that we did. It's how the Lord set up the universe. He placed this immense value on mankind, which I, frankly, it's hard for me to fathom, just as it was David all those years ago. And we saw that last year when we looked at Psalm 139. God numbers each of our days, and he has a specific purpose for each of us to fulfill It's an amazing truth, but each one of us is important to God. He cares about each of us. And what that means for today is simply this. We must not elevate animals to the status of man. We must not elevate animals to the status of man, nor should we lower man to the status of animals. Some people won't kill an ant or a cockroach inside their house. That's not true in our house, by the way, and my wife is number one at whatever, if they're flying or whatever, she can catch them. I can't catch them, but boy, she can catch them, and they're in trouble. Others make huge efforts in saving baby whales, but don't seem to care as much for unborn children. Now, I'm surely not saying here that we should care nothing for animals or for the environment. I think we need to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. So when we cut down trees, we need to plant new trees and so forth. But man has dominion over the earth. That's how God set it up. Second, God made mankind male and female, each with different functions. God made mankind male and female, each with different functions. This is made clear in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Notice that in Genesis 1.27, the Hebrew word Adam is used, which is sometimes used for a man as opposed to a woman, but often it's used in a collective sense, mankind, not distinguishing between man and woman. But in the second part of the verse, our inspired text specifically says male and female, distinguishing the two sexes. Furthermore, Genesis 2.7 tells us that the man was created first from the dust of the ground, and then after uh, tells us that the man named all the animals with no helper comparable to him found for him, 
So the Lord takes a rib from Adam and fashions the rib into a woman. She's taken from Adam. She's to be a helper to him, but she is distinct from him. Sadly, after they disobey the Lord in chapter 3, the Lord speaks of the woman's difficulty in childbearing and the man's difficulty in tilling the ground. And in Genesis 4.1 and the rest of Scripture, it's only the woman who bears a child after the man and the woman have relations. Now, to let you know how fast society has changed, as if I need to let you know, I have taught or preached on Genesis and specifically these chapters uh, since uh, 1977 multiple times, uh, maybe 100 or 200 times or more. But this year is the first time in my teaching or preaching that I've had to mention the following application. And that is, we don't have the right to change our created gender. We don't have the right to change our created gender. God is the one who made us male and female. If we're going to try to change that, we are going against his created order. And it's quite difficult to do, and impossible to do entirely, even in our day, with uh, all kinds of hormonal uh, treatments and surgeries and all the rest. And still, there never has been a case where a male, even one who now identifies as a female, can bear a child. Why not? Because God created us distinctly, male and female. To this day, despite some people using the term pregnant person instead of pregnant woman, only a biological woman can bear a child. The term transgender came about in the 60s, but it was only adopted more widely in the 1990s. Now, barely 30 years later, we are being inundated with this issue, whether we like it or not. Earlier this year, uh, Leah Thompson swam as a transgender woman for the University of Pennsylvania, and she won the Women's uh, Division I National Championship in the 500-yard freestyle. But before that, a few years ago, this individual was William Thomas, who swam for the men's team at Penn, and while he did well, he was only 554th in the national men's ranking. Why? Because, as is well known in athletics, men have a distinct advantage over women in muscle mass and strength as a result of going through male puberty. So for him to transition to a female after puberty and then race as a female, well, uh, and being praised by many while doing it, it's, to put it mildly, ludicrous. We have a number of examples of teachers being fired because they would not use the student's preferred pronoun in addressing them. West Point of Virginia, the school board fired the French teacher, uh, Peter Vlaming, in December 2018, because he wouldn't use male pronouns to refer to a female uh, student who had transitioned. He agreed to use the student's new name, but not male pronouns, he said, because it violated his religious beliefs. That case is now currently before the Virginia Supreme Court, with dozens of groups, including members of Northern Virginia school boards, who have come together to show their support for the decision to fire that educator who refused to say a student's preferred pronoun. To top it off, there's now a book written by Austin Hartke. I read these things so you don't have to. 
a self-identified transgender man who tries to make a biblical case for transgenderism. I am not kidding. Here is just one of his arguments. Even though he says there are various dualities discussed in Genesis 1, light and dark, earth and sky, land and water, male and female, the diversity of creation, he says, eclipses simple binaries. Regarding Genesis 1.27, Hartke says, this verse does not discredit other sexes or genders any more than the verse about separation of day from night rejects the existence of dawn and dusk. But dusk isn't even mentioned, of course, in the text of Genesis 1, and simply because dusk may be viewed as a transitional state uh, from day to night gives no warrant to viewing male and female as only two of a multitude of sexes when Scripture only mentions these two whom God created. And by the way, it's not only humans who were created as male and female, the animals were too. That's why God instructs Noah in Genesis 6 to take males and females of every animal into the ark to preserve them. Because, as I thought everyone knew, but apparently not, it takes a male and a female to have a baby, whether a baby animal or a baby human being, and it's the only way to populate the species. I find it fascinating in all the discussion of this issue that the people who often cry out, follow the science, when it's convenient for their cause, clearly don't follow the science of biology, which is in complete accord with what Genesis 1 and 2 teaches. Biology and scripture teaches that we don't have a right to change our created gender any more than I can change my age from 70 to, oh, let's say, 7. By the way, that would have been very helpful. You're laughing, but it's the same idea. It would have been very helpful last Saturday when I went with my son-in-law, Roderick. I'm trying to convert him to being a baseball, not just a a Ravens fan, but also a fan of uh, baseball and the Baltimore Orioles. And we're having a good season for a change. So, uh, you know, some of us have waited a long time. At any rate, went to this game. It would have been great if I could have said, uh, because uh, Camden Yards has a kids go free. If you have one adult, two kids, nine and under, can go free. Well, I should have just told the person, hey, I'm seven. And this is, you know, this is my adult. And I could have gone free. And I hope you're laughing about that because it's absolutely ridiculous. But how is that any different from waking up one day and deciding that I'm a different gender from what God decided, uh, uh, who God created me to be. By the way, there's an excellent book on this whole subject written by Andrew Walker entitled God and the Transgender Debate. It's available for $8.99 on Kindle. There's another excellent book actually entitled When Harry Met, uh, Met Sally by Ryan Anderson, but you can't find it on Amazon, even though it was a bestseller when it was first released in 2018. Why not? Well, three years later, in February 2021, Amazon decided to pull it because it supposedly described transgender people as mentally ill, which it didn't, but that's another story. Uh, So, you know, the thought police are just everywhere, including now on Amazon. You'll have to buy it as a Nook book from Barnes & Noble. You remember Nook? Yeah, that's not exactly popular anymore. Or as a print 
book from a CBD or some other Christian publisher. Well, I urge you to stay informed on these issues because these things are changing very, very fast. My third point is that marriage is a divine institution given by God as a part of the creation order. Marriage is a divine institution given by God as a part of the creation order. Marriage was not figured out by man. It was instituted by God right from the start. And it's God's definition that matters, not any later attempts by man to redefine it. Marriage is a part of God's created order as revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that on the sixth day of creation, God created man and in his image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Marriage is not specified per se in Genesis 1, but it's clearly instituted in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.18 begins with this striking contrast to the creation account up to this point. Seven times in Genesis 1, God states that his creation was good, using the Hebrew word tov. But now in 2.18, something is not good, lotov. What is not good is for man to be alone. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. As we've already mentioned, Genesis 2, 19 and 20 makes the point that none of the animals qualified as this helper. So in Genesis 2, 21 and 22, God created a woman, Eve, out of Adam's rib. All of this work was God's initiative and his design from the beginning. Adam had absolutely nothing to do with it. So since marriage was initiated by God and it's part of the creation order, my simple application for today is that we don't have a right to change the definition of marriage. We don't have a right to change the definition of marriage. And by the way, to see how quickly the political landscape has changed, in 1996, the Congress overwhelmingly passed the House by 342 to 67, the Senate by 85 to 14, they overwhelmingly passed a bipartisan law entitled the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife and spouse as only a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. And President Bill Clinton signed the measure into law. So at that point, Congress overwhelmingly agreed with the biblical definition of marriage, one man and one woman. Well, my fourth point that we can see from Genesis 1 and 2, which is really an extension of the third point, is that marriage is the union of a man and a woman to become one flesh for the purposes of companionship and procreation. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman to become one flesh for the purposes of companionship and procreation. We've already gone over the relevant texts in our earlier points. Once God made the woman, he brought her to Adam, who exclaimed in 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word for woman, isha, is the feminine form of ish, the word for man. So even in the word's origin, the point is made that the woman was taken from the man, but they're of the same substance. 
even more importantly, the following verse says that they are one flesh. Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This principle is true both on the physical level, as the man and the woman join together in physical intimacy, but it's also true on the spiritual, emotional level, as the two together become one. From the beginning, then, marriage was to, uh, to serve a twofold purpose. First, the one flesh relationship provided companionship for the man and the woman. That is seen in the narrative of Genesis 2, 18 and 20. Second, the sexual intimacy of man and wife would produce children to populate the earth. Immediately after uh, creating uh, uh, man as male and female in Genesis 1.27, in the very next verse, God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So a, ma a main reason for marriage is so that the couple can have children and fulfill God's order to be fruitful and multiply. Marriage and procreation are to go hand in hand. It's uh, the natural result of being one flesh, and it's commanded by the Lord. It's all part of God's plan. In some cases, procreation is not physically possible, but that is the norm presented in Scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus reaffirms this teaching on marriage in his discussion with the Pharisees. When they asked Jesus if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, Jesus takes the Pharisees back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let not man separate, Matthew 19, 4 to 6. Well, the application of this fourth point for today's society is quite clear. Sexual relations outside the marriage relationship, one man and one woman, are not part of God's design and are condemned. This includes polygamy, adultery, and homosexuality. Polygamy is contrary to God's ideal with the Old Testament accounts, time and time again demonstrating the problems with polygamy, beginning in Genesis chapter 4 with Lamech, who is the first polygamist and is presented as a totally godless man. The strife that occurred even with men such as Abraham and Jacob as a result of their polygamy is clearly presented. Likewise, adultery is categorically condemned in the Old Testament, as the fourth commandment makes clear. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. David's actions in taking Bathsheba result in huge negative consequences, both for his family and his kingdom in 2 Samuel chapters 12 to 20. And similarly, the New Testament makes it clear that sucks such sexual relations outside of marriage are to be condemned. Jesus' view is made evident when he's asked about divorce, as we already mentioned in Matthew 19. While Paul is equally direct in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 16 to 18, he says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Third, homosexuality is condemned. 
One would have to be living in a cave somewhere with no internet access in that cave, not to realize what a hot button issue homosexuality has become in America today. Acceptance of homosexual marriages has been building for nearly 50 years, with the tipping point being the Supreme Court's five to four decision seven years ago in, uh, in 2015, legalizing homosexual marriages in all 50 states. Prior to that, most states had laws against it, though some states, sadly such as Maryland, had legalized same-sex marriage a few years before that. Interestingly, as a result of the Supreme Court decision on abortion, there's now an effort in Congress that's going on right now to codify the legality of same-sex marriage into law, sadly, with bipartisan support. Many Republicans are going right along with the current wave of thinking. Contrast that which was, uh, to that which is, was passed by both Republicans and Democrats only 26 years ago in 1996. But the Bible couldn't be clear that homosexual relations are a violation of God's created order and as such are strongly condemned. If scripture is inerrant, and it is, then its principles are authoritative in any age, including ours. And as we already mentioned, <clears throat> God designed marriage, <clears throat> not man. That's our point three of the outline. And marriage is the union between a man and a woman uh, to become one flesh, point four. It seems rather straightforward, <clears throat> both from scripture and from physical anatomy, that a man and a woman fit together wonderfully to be one flesh. It's the way God designed our bodies in the first place. A man and a man can never be one flesh, nor can a woman with a woman. They can do all sorts of strange things to pretend that it works, but it doesn't. In addition, each person in the marriage relationship has a different function, point three in our outline. It goes without saying that God has innately gifted the woman with nurturing capacities, uh, both physically and emotionally. With two men, that nurturing capacity simply isn't there. Numerous studies have shown that children who grow up with both a father and a mother function better in life because of the essential influence of both genders. Now, sometimes that's not the case because for whatever reason, one is not there. And God is gracious in all of those situations. But that's how God designed it. And finally, since one of the purposes of marriage is procreation, it should be evident that having children can't happen physically with a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Well, uh, I knew by this time um, the message was going to go a little bit long, <clears throat> so I gave you a handout on this whole issue. And I really uh, uh, thank uh, Lydia for being willing to put all this in the bulletin and um, and all the rest, but so I'm going to go rather briefly here, uh, because not only is homosexuality ruled out by the teachings of Genesis 1 and 2, it's also judged by God as a part of the wickedness of Sodom in Genesis 19. The city of Sodom is actually used 28 times in the Old Testament and New Testament outside the book of Genesis as a byword for utter perversion and God's judgment upon it. Our word sodomy, of course, comes from this infamous city that was judged by the Lord in Genesis 19. Well, you also have Judges 19, which depicts another 
account very similar to Genesis 19, in which men want to have sex with a traveling Levite. That incident occurs during the very wicked time of the judges when, and quoting the last verse of the book of Judges, in verse 21-25, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If that doesn't sound like the modern day, I don't know what does. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Leviticus 18.22 and 20 verse 13 prohibit homosexuality, calling calling it an abomination. Uh, Hebrew toeva. This word is used only six times in Leviticus. And of all the horrible sins that are talked about in chapter 18 of Leviticus, the only sin that's specifically called an abomination is a man having sex with another man. There are four more references to these sins as abominations in chapter 18. And then the only other time the word is used is in Leviticus 20.13, where again, homosexuality is mentioned. Such strong language is used because this act is a direct affront to God's order in creation, to what God set up in Genesis 1 and 2. The New Testament similarly affirms God's condemnation of homosexuality in uh, four passages, which I've given you there in your notes, but in particular, Romans 1, 24 to 27 clearly condemns homosexuality. We've already talked about how Romans 1 begins with uh, people who are deliberately rejecting God and rejecting Uh, the uh, concept of his creation. And once they reject him, the the downfall continues. And it it says in verse 24, Paul says, God gave them up to uncleanness. And then uh, God's truth was exchanged for the lie of idolatry, worship of the creature rather than God. And then in verses 26 and 27, the greater perversion is indicated with another God gave them up and lesbianism and homosexuality are specifically described in vivid detail uh, prefaced by the words vile passions or shameful lusts. And so those, uh, the foolishness of lesbianism and homosexuality are here exposed by Paul as they are so both obviously against nature. Verse 26. Notice again, the rejection of the God of creation leads to man's living entirely contrary to God's design and order in creation, going back to the principles of Genesis once again. Paul says uh, homosexuality is against nature, a manifestation of uncontrolled lust, and is shameful. By the way, we have another vivid reminder of how homosexuality is against nature in our day. Just 10 days ago, August 4th, President Biden declared monkeypox a national public emergency as the U.S. outbreak with over 6,600 cases, 25% of the world total, has grown into the largest in the world. But what isn't often mentioned, and I didn't know until I looked into this further, is that just like HIV years ago, the outbreak is primarily being driven by sex between men. And when I say primarily, I mean 98%. 98% of the cases have arisen because of men having sex with men. 
biologically, they're simply not the same safeguards that God built in for men having sex with men, since that's not part of God's created order, and it's contrary both to nature and God's commands. Now, I know all of this has been rather depressing. <laughs> as we, I mean, I had to write this stuff. I had to research some of this stuff. It's depressing as we look at how far we have strayed from God's created order. And for sure, it's a big mess that will inevitably get bigger unless we have a spiritual revival in the land. But that leads me to my fifth and final point this morning, this time from Genesis chapter 3. God graciously provides a means of restoration for those who have rebelled against him and his design. God graciously provides a means of restoration for those who have rebelled against him and his design. I entitled this message, God's Design and Man's Rebellion, A Clash of Worldviews. And for sure, I agree that compared with when I was born, 1952, or when I began my preaching and teaching ministry in 76 and 77, things in this country are far worse with man overtly rebelling against God's design in all kinds of ways. But is that something new? Is rebellion against God something new in this century? Hardly. It begins in the very next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. A rebellion against God and his commands began in the garden, with Eve listening to Satan and Adam listening to his wife, rather than both of them listening to and obeying the Lord's clear command. So God drove them out of the garden and inflicted punishments to both the man and the woman. But God didn't abandon them entirely, even after they rebelled against him. Instead, in the words he directed to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, God promised that one from the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent, that is, Satan himself. And that promise of a savior then would be amplified through the Old Testament. In Isaiah 7.14, God promised that a pregnant virgin would bear a son, calling him Emmanuel, God with us. That same promised child is referenced just two chapters later in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so in the first book of the New Testament, in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, we find that the virgin was named Mary, and she would give birth to the prophesied Emmanuel, who would be called Jesus, because the angel uh, told Mary he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. So all the way back in what I consider to be the darkest chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God provided the means of redemption, belief and trust in God's promise of a Savior who would deliver people from the judgment of sin if they would simply trust in Christ as their Savior. The entire rest of the book of Genesis and, in fact, the entire rest of the Old Testament are filled with examples of people who rebelled against God and yet God gave them chance after chance to turn back to him rather than to face judgment. And as we close this message, let me remind you of those glorious words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, 
which were already read this morning, but I'm going to read them again. And you, he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, I love that phrase, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, his poem, his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, God's design for mankind in creation was and is perfect. Yes, mankind has continually rebelled against God's commands and design in marriage and in so many other areas. Yet God longs for each of us to be restored, to return to him and to his design for us, regardless of our sin against him. If we simply trust in his gracious provision, the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God for his amazing grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless. We thank you, Father, that though it was written so many years ago, yet it speaks directly to us and to the issues that we confront even today. Help us, Lord, not to waver from your word, from the truth of your word, regardless of the cultural pressures to do so. And help us, Lord, to teach our children and grandchildren these things. And help us, Lord, to uh, be models, uh, Lord, of, uh, uh, of our faith and trust in Christ, even in our own lives. Lord, it's so easy to tell others what to say or to do, but not to do them ourselves. I thank you, Father, for uh, what you designed in the creation order and all the things that we can learn from, from that. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to rest in you to rejoice in you, and above all, to rejoice in your salvation, which all of us who are sinners have because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your indescribable gift. We pray in Christ's precious name with thanksgiving. Amen.